take your balloons to the next level as we delve deeper into what truly makes a professional balloon artist with your host, Zivi Kivi. Now, welcome to the Balloon Artist Podcast. Hello, Balloon Artist Podcast Nation. This is Zivi Kivi, and this is Season 2, Chapter 10. Gosh, I'm so excited to interview Andrea Noel, all the way from Milwaukee. Andrea Noel is a master twister. She won so many awards. And, you know, when I met her in 2014 in WBC, she already won quite a few awards, and she was crazily talented, and she was also very nice. And we were jamming together in the jam room, in the improv to jam at the last day of the WBC, and she was so, so, just the nicest person ever. And later... When she visited Israel, I had such a good time with Andrea, and it was just phenomenal. She was teaching in Israel a master class. So, listen to this. On 2011, she already performed with her comedy in America Got Talent 2011. And in Twist and Shout 2012, she won the first place and People's Choice for her stage performance. In 2013, she won second place. On 2014... In Twist and Shout, she won the first place and People's Choice. In 2015, she won the second place on the Millennium Jam of 2015. She won the second place on stage performance. And on 2016, just a few months ago, she won the second place as well. She won the Master Twister Award on Twist and Shout, which shows you, you know, how versatile and crazily talented this lady is. And just that you grasp how phenomenal her shows are. She performed with her uh, material for more than for, for more than 2,000 people, for 2,500 people, and was on TV. So hello, Andrea Noel. Hi, Zivi. Thanks for having Hi. me on the show. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. And you know what? I have to share with the audience, this was not easy to coordinate. I was actually trying to uh, have you even on season one. I'm really happy about having you here now on season two because it just makes much more sense to talk with you about entertainment. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to first ask you, a little bit. Can you can you share us the story of you becoming a balloon artist? I know this is something I don't really ask usually, but in your case, I think because of your versatile abilities of you know doing stage performances with balloons, and also the way that you keep exploring the frontiers of balloon art and keep finding out new stuff, I, I want to know. How did you start? Well, um, the performance, I started uh, on stage when I was four. And I did theater stuff uh, up until the age of 14. And when I was 14, I got a book from my mom on basic balloon art. And uh, that was kind of the the start of it all. That was uh, 21 years ago. And uh, I've been twisting in a lot of different venues since then. I've been a restaurant twister. I've been a party entertainer. I've uh, worked at farmer's markets. I've done street busking. Uh, And uh, the performance has really taken off in the last couple of years. So uh, now primarily uh, my twisting is um, uh, I do detailed twisting for photography a handful of uh, gifts for people. So these days you mainly do stage shows 
as a balloon artist, and you don't twist anymore. Do you do, do you do any birthday shows? No, I don't really do any birthday shows anymore. It's been about four years since I did a birthday party. But yeah, a lot of my uh, twisting now is for stage. Wonderful. We are talking this season with all kinds of experts about entertainment with balloons. And I feel like, you know, we could talk about some of your high and very complicated techniques that you use. And some of them are so secretive that, you know, we will probably not be able to talk about them. But this is not the, the season about high-end techniques. We are now on a season about entertainment. And you know what? You figured out all kinds of ways of entertaining with balloons on a stage, on huge stages as well. So tell us a little bit about your background on theater and how, how crucial is that for you, do you think? Yeah, I think the theater training uh, that I've had is, is crucial to me being able to put the kind of material on stage that I create. Um, I'll just preface this with uh, the majority of my work from the last few years, uh, they're short acts for stage, and they're usually part of larger variety and vaudeville shows. Um, I'm still working on some larger shows, longer shows for uh, festivals, uh, corporate gigs, uh, things like that. Tell us a little bit uh, the details of of the theater training so that people will grasp, you know, how deep can you make uh, your training, how, how thorough you can make it. All right. Well, I moved to New Zealand at age 25 to go to circus school. And uh, that program was about a year. And one of the things that really caught my attention there was clowning, uh, because I'm just amazed by the power of comedy. Uh, if somebody can make you laugh, uh, it just it'll make the day amazing, and uh, it's really memorable. So I was in New Zealand for a year, starting to write material there. And after I came back from New Zealand, I wanted to get some more full-time education. So I did a short program in Spain. It was a couple of months uh, full-time clowning uh, program in a circus tent in uh, rural Spain. And uh, then after that, I went and did a year-long conservatory program in physical theater in San Francisco. And uh, that was extremely valuable. So, so you basically learned, you know, for years from uh, clown teachers, from uh, actor teachers, from, you know, I guess also jugglers. And you had a, an opportunity to meet with amazing, amazing teachers, inspiring people that worked with you on different aspects of comedy. Is that right? Yeah. And the road to comedy is... Uh is one that, you know, it's it's an ongoing path. Um, there's there's always another joke to write. There's always a way to tell the joke better, um, whether that's a spoken joke or uh, a physical joke um, for stage. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing learning process. You know, I was struggling with that, how to be funny. And uh, through the beginning part of my training, it's extremely difficult, but when I, I did a research project on balloon art and clowning at some point and was like, well, oh my gosh, balloon art, th this is, you know, this is such a deep part of me. And when I finally started tapping into that, it made comedy so much easier. It just came more naturally. 
I think in a way it was uh, more authentic for you to be on a stage and use balloons for comedy. And uh, you do it in a very unusual way. Uh, your balloons actually create characters. Yes, I perform mostly with three characters, and uh, all three of them involve balloons. So tell us a bit uh, about your characters, because even, you know, just the concept of having a character and not just, you know, uh, having the balloons do very limited things, like maybe pop in a funny way, or maybe transform their shape in a funny way, all of those kinds of usage of balloons are fine, but they are very, you know, magic trick uh, oriented. And what you do is, is, is quite different. It's more like puppetry. Yeah, puppetry is the perfect word for it. I, I consider myself a puppeteer. I'm always puppeteering, even, even if I'm on stage as a character, I'm puppeteering that character. Uh, so my three characters, their names are Elvis, Frank Klausikoff, and the ostrich. So Elvis is a three-foot-tall, lovable, yellow balloon stick figure. And he uh, is well known to audiences for his pluckiness, his enthusiasm, his daringness, and also being somewhat clumsy and unlucky in uh, the adventures he goes through on stage. Um, the audience is always rooting for him. When I was first writing for Elvis, I had this image of this balloon person being a sword swallower. And I really, I thought that juxtaposition of this really dangerous career and, you know, his existence as a balloon uh, would be really funny. And those kind of dangerous adventures are pretty standard for Elvis. So basically his stories involve him, you know, as a, as a, as a stick figure, but also a stick figure for balloons that he's, you know, has a role in life. And his role is that he's a sword swallower. Oh, that's just one act. Yeah, sword swallowing is not his only career. He's, uh, <laughs> yes. he's done acts as a juggler. He's done acts as a balloon artist. He's done uh, acts as a, a fire eater. He's like uh, a juggler or, you know, an expression of what you are deep inside in a way. Just an opportunity to expose some of your traits, I think. Yes, yes, somewhat, but uh, he, I have a lot easier time juggling than he does. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe a younger, you know, a younger Andrea Noel, four years of old or something. Tell me something, is Elvis, you know, how, why did you choose the name Elvis? Oh, well, um, the the very first act I did with him, the track that I used was uh, Elvis Presley's Hound Dog, and he just ended up adopting the name Elvis. Yeah, 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 yeah. It definitely, uh, I can see how it, you know, he adopted it, uh, and uh, at some point the puppet is so, you know, lifelike that it gets uh, almost alive of its own in a way. I had the opportunity of watching Elvis when you were performing in Israel in the festival of balloons called Balloonism by Guy Sheffer. Mm -hmm. And in this festival where uh, I, um, you did the act for many people uh, on a shopping mall, on a big shopping mall, you know, this act translates to any culture, I feel. That's uh, one of the beauties of comedy, of, of uh, physical comedy. Yeah, and uh, the, one of the things that I try to go for in my acts is 
you know, things that anybody can relate to. So kind of the common human experience, if I can capture some of that in the act, then it doesn't really matter what language the audience speaks. Do you also use some gaps between bits of the story in your act in order to interact with the audience? Is there something like that, that Elvis can do? Can He can actually interact? It depends on which act. Uh, some of the acts he does uh, have audience interaction, takes uh, audience volunteers. Um, oh, wow. And then uh, uh, occasionally uh, he is working uh, on the stage as a stagehand or uh, another member of the theater company. And uh, those are all improvised uh, pieces, and those usually go between acts in uh, in variety shows. Just a little comedy between the acts. Um, so yeah, there's there definitely audience interaction. Wow. I also believe that even by you using timing correctly, comedy timing and waiting and, you know, exchanging looks between you and, and Elvis or between you and the audience, that by itself creates an awesome opportunity for people to feel like you are waiting for them or you are, uh, they, they understood the feeling of Elvis or, or Elvis feels ashamed for something or happy or embarrassed and so on so by by you you know stopping between one bit and another in the in the act it creates an interaction inside the audience brain yes comedic timing is a i'm i'm not entirely sure it's something that can be taught it's just a matter of really listening to the audience because there will be that moment where like this it's right it's right right now And so whatever action needs to happen needs to happen right now. And that's the funniest moment. Um, and it's just something you feel uh, by listening to the audience. So tell us a little bit about the next character. Okay, the next character is Frank Klausikoff. Uh, Frank is a dry, somewhat deadpan, uh, about 600-plus-year-old vampire balloon artist. And <laughs> he uh, loves food, awkward family gatherings, Uh, he used to work as a birthday party clown, but now kids are afraid of clowns, so he does funeral entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, part of Frank's appeal, I feel like, is his vampire view of the world. He sees things very differently than uh, people do, but he still faces real-world problems like you know, problems with technology, taxes, a mortgage, family. So... He's relatable, but he's definitely absurd. So I remember seeing a picture of you dressed as, you know, as a vampire. And how will you incorporate the balloon spot into Frank or into the character of Frank? Some of Frank's acts are balloon based and some of them aren't. The, you know, because Frank uh, is a vampire, Uh, a lot of his ideas about balloon art are they're less uh, lighthearted and whimsical, um, and he tends more towards uh, balloon animals of things that are maybe a little bit uh, creepier or um, a little bit morbid. And uh, a lot of uh, what Frank does on stage is, you know, acts that, again, are, are part of larger shows. And so 
he comes on stage to do an act, and whether that be a demonstration in balloon art or a juggling demonstration or something like that, um, uh, he he would be doing balloon art as part of a demonstration uh, or an act to entertain the audience. But uh, he's not a he's not a line work character. He's definitely a stage character. Of course, of course. And I see uh, already uh, kind of a pattern in your choice of characters even by now because, you know, Elvis as a balloon figure uh, is also, you know, a dangerous sword, sword swallower and juggler and so on. And Frank as a vampire is, you know, a birthday party clown and does balloons and juggler, juggling as well. So... That's, uh, you know, you, you keep making uh, absurd decisions that uh, are funny to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. So tell us a bit about the ostrich. Okay. Uh, the ostrich is a five-foot-tall, full-body puppet uh, bird. Uh, her eyes and her tail and her other feathers are balloons. Um, she's really curious, really social, um, but she's not very smart, and uh, but makes up for that by being extremely lucky uh, in escaping peril. Um, I kind of think of her a little bit like the Roadrunner from Looney Tunes. Yep. And uh, uh, I think a lot of her charm uh, comes from, you know, the wonder and fascination that people have for animals and nature. Um, and then uh, interest uh, in with the unpredictability you know, that comes with, uh, uh, let's chop that last part of that sentence off. Okay. Um, so uh, the, this sounds like a character that is uh, quite uh, big. Is it, does it take a lot of time to create it? Uh, no, no, she doesn't take a lot of time to create. Um, uh, of all the characters, Frank actually takes the longest to create because there's a lot of makeup involved, but um, uh, the ostrich is, is pretty quick, maybe uh, you know, 10 minutes to really build the costume correctly, uh, the puppet part of the costume. And uh, Elvis yeah. just yeah. takes a couple minutes as well to build. Yeah. So uh, what, what is your role when you're doing the ostrich? I, I need to imagine it. So paint me a picture of what is your role inside. Well, your, like you are the, the, the ostrich or you are the puppeteer of the ostrich? Uh, both. So um, my right hand acts as the ostrich's head and my arm is her neck. And then I actually am kind of leaned over into a, uh, with my body kind of crunched into a, the smallest shape I can get it into, um, inside uh, a black costume. And then oh, my wow. legs are the ostrich's legs. So it's, it's, both, um, it's yes. both a costume and a puppet. But now I can definitely imagine it. But basically what you would see on, on the stage is an ostrich like you would yeah. know you could you could imagine you know there's someone inside obviously but uh you would see an ostrich and the, is is it a talking ostrich or uh, just a playful one she makes noises but uh she doesn't uh i mean it's, she doesn't speak english 
<laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Uh, so, so very interesting. Uh, I hope to to meet you know to meet the ostrich one day or maybe Frank. I have a feeling uh, this might happen uh, pretty soon one day. Yeah. Um, and uh are those characters you know the kind of things that you just constructed and they were yours to use, or did they also evolve as as you progressed with with their acts yeah so they they all you know there was all for all three of them there was a initial spark um you know in my imagination that you know made me say i I need a, you know, I need a, let's see, let me start again. Okay. So for, so for all three, there, there was an initial spark that, you know, generated the first idea for the character. Um, and as the years go by and I write more material for these characters, uh, they don't really change per se, but the longer that I'm performing with them and writing for them, the more nuances I discover uh, about them, um, the more, you know, personality traits uh, get defined. And, uh, you know, it's it's like getting to know a friend, sort of. Yeah. And also, in a way, getting to know the audience's preferences. Because I I know how you know how you listen to the audience and you feel what is good for them and then you find out you know what what works better and then suddenly you know Frank becomes even more obsessed with food because those are the the lines that worked better in a way. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Cool. Uh, so uh, writing, you know. The material for the characters is more than just thinking about the characters. There's there's a, a process going on uh, through your that you that you create. Uh, the the creation of the material is something that uh, is not uh, something you do in one day, right? No, usually I I don't write an act just in one day, but every once in a while that happens. Um, uh, but usually an act, you know, is an evolving thing, you know, it may even take years to get an act to the, the point that I'm really happy with it. Um, but yeah, it always, it all starts somewhere and, uh, you know, something will happen in life that, you know, strikes me as funny or interesting and, uh, and I might think about, well, how would my characters react in this situation? You know, yeah. like if, um, uh, let me see if I can find an example. Um, so like an example, like I recently got a new phone and I had to call customer service. And so I'm waiting on, on the, on hold with customer service and, I, it makes me laugh because I'm like, what if this was Frank on hold? What would Frank say to, to the phone company? That you know, that would be funny to me. Um, so yeah, I just I, I give myself free range. Uh, you know, what would what would I do? Um, I try to keep my mind open. Uh, I do play a lot as the characters. 
Um, and sometimes it helps to give a restriction uh, to the character. You know, like I, I need to, uh, let me take the restriction thing off. Um, hmm. I'm getting lost in what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, let me help you. So, um, so you basically live your life with, you know, those extra friends with you, the three friends that are, you know, well-defined in your head. And then whenever you want to, you can, you know, play with them and uh, think about what they would say. And I can, I can personally totally relate to that because I, uh, for, for many years, I had a, a, a huge passion for writing long stories. And, you know, wh when you're writing long stories, even, you know, novels, um, you, you, the, the characters in the story, they became, they become real in your head. They have, you know, their own life. They have their own needs and their own, their own wants. And you cannot even force them to do something, uh, that, you know, meets your original plan for a plot because they have their own style of doing stuff. So in a way, you just live with those characters, uh, I imagine and, uh, gather material from anywhere and anything you do yeah yep i'm i keep a a notebook a digital notebook with me and if uh if i have an idea or an inspiration or i've thought up something funny for one of the characters i you know write it down um yeah. but uh you know as much as i gather ideas together you st i still have to put them together into an act that's coherent and makes sense and so yes. sometimes I have to be a little bit more, you know, less free form and uh, I'll, I'll put on some music that'll get myself into the emotional state uh, for the kind of act that I want to create. And then I'll just sit down on my couch with my laptop and, and start writing. Um, so, oh, wow. yeah, sometimes uh, I, I'm so curious now about, you know, if you can uh, give an example of the music. Like, if you have a specific music that you uh, can share us, share with us. Uh, sure. So, um, I feel like a lot of. Uh, uh, so, uh, one of my Elvis routines is a very beautiful, simple uh, routine where Elvis is um, uh, finds a red balloon. Uh, that he really loves. And it's such a sweet and sentimental act. I thought, you know what this really needs is like a really simple melody line with a single instrument. And so I, I went searching for music and I found a, a really beautiful piano piece that had a very simple melody but had a lot of emotion in it. And uh, it was a very uh, hopeful uh, type of music um, yep. with just a tiny touch of sadness as well, and uh, that that was the perfect um, the perfect music to create that emotional state. And so, how did you find the music? Wow, that's tricky. Um, I I'll have in my head kind of a, a the type of music I want, whether it is you know a simple piano melody or um, uh, complex polka music, but a lot of times I'll go to Amazon and to their MP3 library 
and I will search for accordion music or polka music. And if I know how long I want the act to be, I'll search for you know all tracks that are four minutes and 50 seconds to five minutes and 20 seconds. And wow. then I'll listen to little uh, previews of the MP3s until I find things that sound like they might work. And then I download the songs and then I listen to those songs as I'm writing and see which ones really speak to me or seem to match the act. Wow, that, that sounds like a process that uh, makes a lot of sense for me. And uh, I really appreciate uh, that you share with us that uh, the way that you are, um, use music to inspire you and also to make the emotion, emotional connection uh, clearer to the audience because uh, I, I know how much music can uh, emphasize an act. Uh, I really like your, uh, your idea. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, about writing comedy and wh what else goes through your mind except for putting the music to help you get inspired. Well, uh, when I'm uh, trying to write comedy, uh, I'll start off with um, a joke premise, and uh, then I will think of several punchlines for the joke. And um, if it's a, a spoken joke, I'll usually call a friend who I think is quite funny and run the joke by that friend and see which punchline makes them laugh the most. Um, yeah. If I'm doing physical comedy... I will uh, videotape myself doing the ends to uh, some of these setups. And uh, for physical comedy, the uh, punchline is called the blow-off. And so I, I work on the setups and then the, the blow-offs for the, the physical act, the, the punchlines. And I see when I videotape it, I see what makes me laugh. Oh, wow. And that's how I pick my... Uh, punch Your lines favorite for blow physical. Off. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that that that's definitely interesting. Is is that like the term blow off? Is that something that you can you know find many YouTube clips about about ideas and about uh, and the, uh, about that about that? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll find out and share with everyone. Um, so, what else? Like, uh, wh who who are your heroes on the comedy world? Well, I have so many. Um, from early in life, uh, I think my my earliest hero was uh, Red Skelton, uh, who's passed away a long time ago now. But um, he was a physical comedian um, genius. And then more recently, I would say I've uh, really loved some of the clowning I've seen in Cirque du Soleil. I love Pixar. Um, I've really appreciated uh, the comedic puppetry of uh, Jordi Bertrand and Il Retreated de Dorian Gray. Uh, so those are some of my favorites. I see. Um, cool. Let me just... Uh find a way to continue okay so uh, Andrea tell us a little bit about you know uh, I understand the premise of how 
you know, you sit with the music and you try to write comedy or you uh, video yourself in order to find the right blow-off. Uh, but but there's a lot of stories, a lot of, of stories inside your acts. So uh, tell us a little bit about the considerations that you have when you're developing a story for your character. Sure. Um, well, I've got so much on this. Uh I would say, first off, I think about um, emotion, themes, and uh, problems, characters. So I would say how, first I say to myself, how do I want the audience to feel uh, from this act? Am I going for comedy? Am I going for um, something sweet and poignant, uh, something nostalgic? Um, and an audience, it doesn't have to be one single emotion. They can have multiple emotions through the act, but, uh, having the audience feel something is, uh, one of the keys to making your act memorable and really sticking with people. Um, and when I'm devising, when I'm writing, um, and when I'm performing, I think about, can I elicit that emotion from myself during my devising process you know and if I'm thinking of a joke for the act does it make me laugh Um, so the the first thing I I think about is how do I want the audience to feel Um, the second thing I think about is what's the main theme of my story you know could be love adventure science elephants spider-man whatever you know I um I especially love writing for, like I said earlier, themes that involve the common human experience. So I, I find I write a lot about, you know, joy, love, loss, uh, reconnecting with things. Um, so theme. Uh, next, uh, I think about what do I want to accomplish in my act? So what am I coming out to do? You know, is my, am I, is my character coming on stage to... Uh, juggle. And then what is the problem that is going to prevent me from doing what I came out to do? So, uh, you know, if I came out to juggle and I look up and the lights are too bright and I can't see what I'm doing. So that's the problem. The lights are too bright. Uh, So I came out to juggle, the lights are too bright, and this is a problem that I have to solve before I can finish what I came on stage to do. So I like to use um, the the words, so that, uh, to connect the storyline. So the lights are too bright, uh, and I need to turn down the lights so that I can perform my act, uh, for example. And then uh, I also like to think about who is in the show. Um, So for me, I'm mainly using my three characters, Elvis, Frank, and the ostrich. Um, And then I think about, well, you know, if I came out to to juggle, why uh, do I want to be on stage juggling? What personality traits um, will fit best with this act, you know? and um, can the audience relate to the characters and these um, 
and their personalities. Wait, I'm going to start this one over. So Okay. Um I'm actually going to come back and use this. I'm going to redo the um from uh what I want to accomplish. If you don't mind, I'm sorry. Um uh, from, from where? From oh, Okay, yeah, right I, got after it, I got themes. it. Right. So, uh right after themes. Right after themes. Got it. Okay. Yeah, so and then next I think about what do I want to accomplish in this act? And then a storyline can really be built around the problems that I have that would prevent me from doing what I came on stage to do. Um, so, for example, say one of my characters is going to come on stage to do an act and a light bulb on stage burns out. I need this light so that I can perform the act. And I often think about, you know, the connection logic between the story elements with those words so that uh dang it i'm still not saying this right sorry <laughs> zivi um that's okay the, the pre, you, you're time. you're right yeah La, the last time was even better so the I'm first try one again. <laughs> so yeah go ahead so next i think about what i want to uh, accomplish in the act and then what sorts of problems might happen that would prevent me from accomplishing uh, my task. And those problems is what helps me build a storyline. So I like to use the word so that to connect my storylines. So as an example, I'm going to come on stage to do a juggling act and a light bulb burns mm -hmm. out. I need this light to be on so that I can perform my juggling act. And so how can I solve this problem? Well, I need to go get a ladder so that I can change the bulb. And what problem might I have now with the ladder? Well, I have to solve that so that I can change the bulb so that I can juggle. For, you know, that's just an example. Um, yeah. And I, I've already mentioned my three characters, but characters are extremely important uh, in, for me on stage. I always want to think about, you know, who is it in this show? Like, who are these characters? So who is Frank? Who is Elvis? What drives them? You know, what are their personality traits? Can the audience relate to them? Um, and if I was, you know, going to advise somebody coming on stage to, to uh, do a new character, you know, I say that... Um, I personally put elements of myself into all of my characters because I feel like that makes it really easy for me to have uh, a more natural response. Um, and so, you know, how the character reacts on stage is more natural. Um, those reactions are also super key. Uh, and so I think about, you know, as my character in this situation, how do I feel? And if this happened, how would I react? How would that character react? And having an honest reaction um, gives you credibility on stage. And that, that honesty and that credibility uh, equals audience engagement and trust. And so that's really important. Um, wow. Yeah. The, the, this sounds like a process that, although it, it is you know, hard to implement well, uh, but it is also something that you can 
uh, take as a, as like a road map or a map or, or compass because you start by you know putting the right music on or on the stereo so that you get into the mood and then you basically uh, want to choose what what is the accomplishment of uh, the character like, yeah uh, what what the, does the character want to do it wants to maybe do a juggling act it wants to I don't know do something specific and you choose what will the audience feel which is uh, a, a huge uh, think for you because you can actually uh, accomplish that uh, feeling. You know, you may, you can make the audience feel whatever you choose. So, for example, uh, you you might choose to make them laugh, but you also want them to make it in somewhat nostalgic atmosphere or so on. So, so you you choose what kind of feeling you want to give, and the more specific you choose, the better you will be able to fine-tune the, the material basically and you give a theme which is kind of like an extension of the feeling but it's an it's more than just an extension it's it's also something that will dictate maybe your props or maybe uh, the rest of the uh, problems that uh, will occur and then uh, you, you you create a storyline with problems and one problem will basically you know lead to the other or prevent the original task the original accomplishment and uh, by knowing who is your character you follow uh, with the storyline you 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 go from one problem to the next in a way that is natural for that character and also natural for you in a way yeah yeah, um, and but it's important. It's not just the the act isn't just simply a connection of of uh, one problem after another. There, you really do need to kind of build in that story arc um, with you know. And there's an intro, the development of the act, and then some sort of climax uh, to the act. You know, the biggest joke, the biggest emotional impact, uh, something like that will happen right right at, towards the end of the act. Uh, and then, uh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm trying to understand the point about coincidences. Mm, this was, I was having trouble with this. That's why I left it uh, high, uh, italicized. Oh. Um, uh, it was uh, uh, me thinking about, you know, a lot of people say, well, how can I, uh, uh, I'll save that. That's too complicated, okay. I think. Okay. Uh, so um, um, I'll now go to the... Quick thing in, yeah? in that last kind of the summary you were doing of story and character, um, you started off with... Uh, <laughs> uh, you put on music to get in the mood. And um, I don't know if that means the same thing in Israel, that the context of that in the States is... Uh, that particular phrasing usually, oh, yeah, okay, is, is so, not uh, very good. So maybe, maybe slightly rephrase that, and maybe you might need to redo that section. Cool, cool, uh, good that you say. Um, so let me just, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll just cut it or something and see how, how to make it logical. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, I, I'll now mention 
the masterclass you gave mm-hmm. and the tips about the power of threes and about breathing. And I want you to explain those tips. Okay. Uh, so powers of three. Oh, wait, wait. <laughs> like, allow me to first... Oh, uh, okay. And uh, when Andrea Noel was in Israel, uh, she gave us um, a masterclass about balloons and about uh, advanced uh, advanced twisting skills. But also, uh, you gave us, Andrea, um, some really powerful tips about performances. And uh, two of those tips that really stuck with me are your tips about the power of trees and about breathing. So can you give us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, the number three is a really common number that you see uh, throughout performance. Um, You know, whether it be there's three objects in a story or, no, let me start again. So yeah, the the number three is a very powerful number, uh, both in story writing uh, and for comedy. Uh, so for comedy, uh, I will do something once to establish the existence of that thing, uh, a second time to build a pattern, and then a third time I will do something that is in the same vein but breaks the pattern. And that third time uh, having... Uh, something different happen, breaking that pattern uh, is what leads to comedy. Um, I sat next to a cartoonist on a bus once, and I said, tell me about the power of three. And he affirmed to me that it's uh, basically comedy gold. So it's like a three-beat, it's like there's three beats to a joke, for example. You know, knock, knock, who's there? Oranges. Oranges who? Uh, that's a terrible joke. Gosh darn it. <laughs> I'm having difficulty with this one too. Um, the, the part about the, car- the cartoonist is not, uh, is not that important. You made the point of why it's important to use power trees. So uh, let me just uh, give uh, an example from Guy. Uh, so, so basically by, you know, having a pattern of doing something three times on the first time, you create, uh, you establish the, ex- the existence of it, and on the second time you prove this is a pattern. On the third time, you basically break the pattern. That's that's also something that is, you know, used in storytelling and in crowd engagement. For example, uh, two weeks ago, Guy Sheffer was on the show, and he talked about how he asks the the kids. Um, who wants to see the show? Uh, whoever wants to see the show, the show, say me. And then he says it in a very sh- uh, low tone. And the second time he says with a little more passion, whoever wants to see the show, say me. And then the last time, the third time, he, he, he practically yells with excitement. Whoever wants to see the show, say me. And everyone are just out of their chairs. Uh, shouting me as well with his level of enthusiasm. So you know it, the power of three is 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 very powerful, and when you break the pattern, that's when you can also create comedy. Yeah. Yep. Cool. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about the importance of breathing. Well, you can never underestimate the power of breathing, um, yeah. and the audience is actually watching you 
breathe on stage. So they may not be consciously aware of it, but if you're holding your breath on stage, the audience might be holding their breath. Uh, if you relax and breathe, the audience will relax and breathe. And so you can use that breath and the holding of breath to uh, create emotional states for the audience. So uh, if you're building suspense in an act, if you hold your breath, the audience is probably also holding their breath. Um, and uh, breathing also lets the audience know when it's okay for them to applaud. So I uh, did a show just last night, actually, and uh, I took my, I came out uh, after the act to uh, take my bow, and I just looked at the audience for a moment, and then I exhaled, and then they started to cheer. So breathing, wow. uh, breathing is key on stage. And uh, I just can't tell you how many times I've seen someone, especially when they're doing a new act, uh, and they're so nervous on stage that they're not breathing. And uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable as an audience member. Yeah, you basically know that this is new material by not being able to breathe as often as an audience member. And uh, as, a, as a performer, uh, when you remember breathing, and you do it in a way that that is significant it just uh shows the the audience it shows the audience that you're in control that uh this is real this is not just you being an actor this is uh, you being the actual character yeah uh of the show yeah and that that's something that also um um you can achieve by by remembering to breathe and by practicing it and finding the right cues, which is awesome. I mean, the, the breathing it can actually cause your audience to clap just by you breathing. Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. Wonderful. And uh, you also gave us uh, some tips about, you know, always, re no, I don't know if always, but reacting when something happens. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, we're on stage and uh, they're... Uh, we like to say in theater that there's a fourth wall. So the fourth wall is uh, the wall between the stage and the audience. So if the audience wasn't there, uh, you know, you would picture, hmm, crap. Uh, I don't know. Can you ask me this question again? Sure. So uh, w when you were in Israel and you taught in the master class, you also um, explained about the importance of reacting to things that happen in your show that are unexpected. So tell us a little bit about that. Maybe you have uh, some examples of uh, situations where you were on the stage and you had to react to something. And what was the result of that? Sure. So, you know, the magic of performing for live audience is that there's uh, no fourth wall. So this is not the movies. We're not in an isolated room. Um, we have a, a real audience there and things happen. So, you know, if uh, somebody yells something out or somebody's cell phone goes off or, you know, if the fire alarm goes off, uh, you got to acknowledge it because something's happened and everyone in the audience heard it too. So if you don't 
acknowledge what's going on in the theater when everyone has already, you know, obviously noticed it. it it's kind of weird. So, yeah. um, and then also reacting to that and acknowledging things that have happened uh, in the audience or in the theater during your show um, will let everyone laugh. So, uh, yeah. because you're being and honest, that, you know. Yeah. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to apologize for anything that is unexpected. It just means that, you know, the character itself, with all of its personality and traits, and according maybe also to the theme and so on, will react to what just happened. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, you know, the ostrich is probably my uh, most reactive character. Um because uh, people will try to, and uh, nah, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that off. Okay. Um, so uh, we're we're pretty much uh, on the end of our time. So let's see if you have like something else you want to give away uh, from uh, polishing, maybe one of some something or. Um, uh, so the, the, maybe the part about your actionable tips. So I can ask you what are your like a few final tips for a performer, an aspiring performer that wants to do comedy, and then you can go to a free form about the actionable tips. Yeah, uh, let's see. Sure. So either you want to you want to leave out either pushing the, the act? No, no, that that's okay too. So I can ask you, um, I I can ask you about uh, how how do you polish the act, and you can free fall on that as well. So okay. either way, sure. free, f- polishing. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> so uh, tell us a little bit, Andrea, about you know you have an act, you have an idea, you created the, the theme and the feeling and the problem for the for 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 the character and now you need to work on it uh as and you need to polish the act so what what is the process what are some of your tips about polishing an act well let's see i would say first off um when you're on stage you listen to the audience and where the audience reacts and where they don't react to your performance and does that uh, match up to what you expected? So if you had written a joke but no one laughed, uh, you should take note of that. Um, I also like to um, get feedback from uh, friends or people whose opinion that I trust um, about the show. Like, uh, did they experience the emotion that I wanted them to feel? Uh, Was the act clear to them? Um, I also, uh, I video myself. Um, a lot of times I video in the studio, but also videoing uh, the stage show. And when I watch that video, uh, I try to feel where am I bored or annoyed or confused. If, if I have any of those reactions to watching my act, uh, that is a point that I probably will need to work on. Um, so yeah, those are some of my tips for polishing an act. Well, 
cool and um i definitely can relate to that so for for the purpose of you know videoing yourself that's something that uh i'm very in, invested in uh even in my birthday shows and also you know listen to people that you appreciate so uh on uh the next chapter of uh, the balloon artist podcast i'm actually uh having Danny Schlesinger, the director and the balloon performer, uh, giving me feedback on some of my uh, routines that I do on birthday shows. And also when you were in Israel, I had the, the privilege of showing you my birthday show and getting some uh, feedbacks that uh, really helped me improve it. So I definitely encourage you guys that are listening now to the Balloon Artist podcast and listening to Andrea Noel and her ideas of how to create comedy, which are just, you know, uh, ideas from learning for years uh, in many places. You can, you know, be inspired and build your winning team, you know, that team around you of people that you uh, appreciate, those people that are, you know, maybe three steps ahead of you on a specific uh, topic in life. And that topic might be comedy, you know. There's always people around us that we can... Um, keep close in order to improve ourselves. Yeah. So, Andrea, I'm really thankful for uh, for your time with us today. Uh, I, I, you know, I feel I feel like people will definitely want to meet Elvis and Frank and the ostrich uh, again soon. I hope that you will give us those opportunities, maybe in a convention nearby uh, do you have any any um any plans for uh going to conventions in the near future uh yes i'm going to uh be at uh, several conventions in the near future i will uh, be planning on being at uh, the hamburg jam in hamburg germany and uh the slovenia jam uh in uh, the capital of slovenia uh, I do believe uh, there may be an Israeli jam in the works. There may be, there may be. And uh, we're we working on that. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, I'll be a twist and shout next year. Wonderful. So I, I, I'm just feeling so lucky because I will have the opportunity, the opportunity of meeting you uh, in Israel again in uh, the uh, Israeli event that is cooking right now. And also uh, in Twist and Shout 17, where I will be giving uh, my class as an instructor on business topics. Nice. Yes, it's uh, now official. So, <laughs> um, thank you, Andrea, again for, you know, I, I just want to emphasize how, how important it is for everyone, for all of us in the industry to have um, people like you, Andrea, that is, is not only uh, extremely friendly and and extremely giving. Uh, you and you know you teach people. You taught in, in Israel. You taught in in Ozgem, and I believe you will have many opportunities also to teach again, uh, even in the near future. Uh, and uh, it's not that ju- it's not just that. It's the fact that you choose. Uh, to take the art and you take the art and you put some steroids, steroids inside and you create you know, new boundaries, new boundaries for the balloon art. And uh, you do the same in, on stage 
and it's just so fun to see how how you grow as a balloon artist and how uh, the balloon art itself uh, makes a progress and um I, I just I just thank you for being so awesome <laughs> well thank you <laughs> <laughs> so I now uh, give take credit on uh, being able to embarrass you live on the show and uh, I, I thank you again and uh, I'll see you soon thanks Vivi okay bye bye everyone okay I'll clap and then we can breathe Hello, Balloon Artist Podcast Nation. My name is David Kay. You may know me as Silly Billy. I'm a full-time children's entertainer from New York City. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I love it, and I still love it, and I love working with kids. Uh, I want to tell you about uh, two different things, uh, two different books. I, I wrote two books. The first book is very interesting. It's, about, it's really about techniques to entertain children. Okay, so there's there's like there's chapters on uh, using comedy. There's chapters on using interaction, keeping the kids interact interacting with the with your show. Uh, there's stuff about how to keep the adults entertained and keep them quiet while you're doing your show. Uh, it's really great, and I'll tell you, I get emails from all over the world from uh, from teachers and from balloon artists and face painters and everybody that uh, storytellers, people who work with children. They learned so much from this book. This book is called Seriously Silly. It's been out for a few years, and I cannot tell you uh, how many wonderful emails I get from people who tell me that it's changed their lives. Uh, my favorite is this uh, guy said he, he put his three kids through college using the material in my book, you know, in, in that he made a great show and his show got better and, and he got more business and so on. The other thing you need to know when you're a children's entertainer, especially if you're in a, in a competitive market, you want to differentiate yourself from your competition. So let's say you're a balloon artist and you want to offer something else that your competition doesn't offer. You could, you could do a few magic tricks, one magic trick, two magic tricks, but just saying something like that on the phone or in your email uh, to a client or a potential client, this is going to set you apart from your competition. One guy does balloon uh, a balloon show. Second guy does a balloon show, and he also does some juggling, and he does some magic tricks and things like that, and that, I think, helps sell you better. And if you're looking for that, you can, you can get my brand-new book, which is called Supersized Silly. This is a book with 150 plug-and-play magic routines the, the the routines that are in this book they do not require any fancy sleight of hand basically the props that are used in this book you can buy from any magic shop and they basically work themselves there's nothing there's nothing to learn about being a magician these are these are 150 routines from 100 different magicians from around the world and uh they gave me the best routines they had and the words that you say are in the routine how to do the trick the you know the mechanics all the jokes everything including theory which will help you learn to understand what it is that you're doing and why it works uh the new book is called super size silly you can get both of those books from my website which is called sillymagic.com so at sillymagic.com you can get one book super, super size silly the other the first book uh, seriously silly you can see there's a pattern there and uh, ser really oh, seriously 
you will you will learn how to be a better entertainer for children. So I hope you check that out. I'm David Kay. Thanks for listening.